hallelujah. So before I start, I, I kind of want to share the, the sequence of events that led to me teaching tonight. Uh, Pastor Mike texted me about six weeks ago and, and asked me if I could teach tonight. Uh, and you'll recall the last time I taught was Super Bowl Sunday. Tonight is Easter Sunday. And so I'm really looking forward to coming back on 4th of July Sunday, uh, Thanksgiving Sunday, and Christmas Sunday. But he texted me about six weeks ago and asked if I could teach. And so I, you know, I was praying for the last six weeks, and I was doing some studying, but I didn't want to uh, prepare too early because I, I have this tendency to over-prepare, and I didn't want to show up with 15 pages of notes. So I was holding off on my studying, and then it was Saturday two weeks ago, so 15 days ago, uh, before I was going to bed, I started to get some direction. And, uh, and so you know, I, I sat up in bed, and I, I jotted down a few notes, and I was like, this is a good foundation. This is a good place for me to head with my, with my sermon in two weeks. I'm feeling really good about this. So I, I jotted everything down, went to sleep, uh, came to church on Sunday morning, and Pastor Mike opened up by, by teaching exactly what I had written down the night before. And I was like, dang it, two weeks is too soon. I can't prepare two weeks early. That's way too early. So again, I spent those last two weeks praying and doing some studying, but not writing anything down. And then yesterday, Shane and Jack went out for a couple hours, and I spent maybe four or five hours at home uh, studying for tonight. And, and I was praying, and I, I felt like I had really good direction, like, oh, man, this is going to be so good, what I'm going to teach on. Uh, I'm going to teach on Passover. And I'm going to start in Exodus chapter 12, and that'll be the start of this excellent sermon. And you know, for those of you that were here this morning, Pastor Mike walks up to the pulpit and says, Happy Easter. And as we all know, Easter is closely related to Passover. So flip in your Bibles, if you would, to Exodus chapter 12. And I'm looking at my notes, and I'm like, oh, no. And then he, he reads through that, and he's like, and, you know, even if you go to Psalm 105, and I look at my notes, Psalm 105, oh, no. And he just went through, and, and he taught a lot of the things that I was planning on sharing so we're going to have an adventure tonight uh, because Pastor Mike took all my good stuff. So uh, I'm convinced that he had the Russians hack my email accounts and, and take all my notes for this. Uh, no, that's, that's probably, probably not what happened. Uh, it's more likely, it's encouraging for me that, that I was in tune with the Holy Spirit uh, and what the Holy Spirit wanted to communicate. I just didn't realize that's what the Holy Spirit wanted Pastor Mike to communicate. Uh, so we're going to take things in a slightly different direction. We're going to start uh, with two passages, two passages of Scripture. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, and Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. So let's start in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. First John chapter 3, verse 8. Uh, John writing, he says, He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. I want you to focus on that last part. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. You know, uh, we talk a lot about... Uh, Salvation, that God came to save you, God came to redeem you, God came to be your sacrifice. God, even you know, on Easter we talk about God was raised to life from the dead. And, and that's all true, and that's awesome, and that's fantastic. But we need to recognize that not only 
did God rise back to, or did Jesus rise back to life? But in doing so, he defeated the devil. He destroyed the enemy. You know, we live in a world where, where everyone gets a trophy. You know, you get a trophy for first place, and then even if you lose, you get a trophy. But the devil didn't get a trophy when he lost. God won. God secured the victory. And the devil was defeated. The devil was destroyed. And it says right here that the reason Jesus came, one of the main reasons Jesus came to the earth, was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, now what are those works? I, I was thinking about it this afternoon, uh, and, and John 10.10 10 comes to mind, you know, that the thief has come to steal and to kill and to destroy. And those are works of the devil. So the devil comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. But Jesus destroyed that work. Jesus defeated that work. And it says in that same exact verse, John chapter 10, verse 10, uh, that the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I am come that you may have life. And he doesn't just give you life, but he gives you life more abundantly. He defeats the work of the devil, and then he restores what is lost with a little bit extra. I also thought of Acts chapter 10, verse 38, which says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. So again, we see right there that one of the devil's works is bringing sickness to people. But God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, and he went about doing good, which means that sickness is bad. He went about doing good, and he healed all who were oppressed of the devil. Because God was with them. Is God with any of us? Or we could do the same thing. Amen, I like that, you know? I, but, but all these things, you know, we talk about stealing and killing and destroying. We talk about sickness. But there's, there's a deeper cause of all these things. Uh, Pastor Mike's talked about this a lot, but you go to, to Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, and it talks about uh, God is warning Adam and Eve that if they sin in the garden, he says, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. And it's a, it's a really interesting phrase in the Hebrew. He does, it doesn't say the word surely. It says, uh, and, and you shall die, die. It says it twice. Some translations even translate it, and dying, you shall die. So what's he saying there? Because Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, and they didn't immediately fall over dead that day. It took hundreds of years for them to actually die physically. Well, Genesis tells us, it says that dying, you shall die. In other words, death will come upon you, and that death will cause death in every other area of your life. He's talking about spiritual death here. When, he, when Adam and Eve sinned, it brought spiritual death upon every person that would be a, uh, a child of Adam and Eve. And that death, that spiritual death that they had caused death in their physical lives. It caused death in their relationships. I think it's really interesting that, that the first thing that Adam does after he sins is stop taking all responsibility for anything he's ever done and blame other people. It caused this, the spiritual death caused death in his relationships. He had kids that ended up killing one another. It caused death in his family. It caused death in their health. It caused death in their finances. 
and every area of their life, they were dying. And that's exactly what God said would happen. Dying, you shall die. That's the work of the devil. The work of the devil is stealing and killing and destroying. It's bringing sickness upon us, but it's also having brought in spiritual death upon us, which leads to all those other things. And yet the Bible says that the Son of God came to the earth to destroy that work. Now, you might have your fingers in Hebrews chapter 2. Let's flip there and see what Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 has to say. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood... He himself, talking about Jesus, likewise shared in the same. Now, I want to point out that what that's saying is that Jesus became just as human as every one of you. A couple of years ago, we were, we were talking to the youth uh, about the nature of God and the nature of Jesus. And we were talking to one of the high schoolers, and, and we asked him, you know, we just said, like, is Jesus God? And he said, yes. And then we said, is, is Jesus human? And he said, yes, but... But not like we're human, you know. It was kind of just a cover to trick the devil. And I think that we often have this idea that Jesus was a different kind of human than you and me. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, look at this, verse 14. Inasmuch as the children have partaken in flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. Just as much as you are human, just as much as the people sitting around you are human, Jesus was a genuine human. And yet he still was able to live the life that he lived. It's because he had the life of God inside of him as well. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, says that we also are partakers in that divine nature. John says someplace that just as he is now, so are we in this world. Jesus isn't fundamentally different than we are. Jesus came to the earth to become like we are, so that we can become like he is. Amen? But that's not what I'm talking about. That's just an added little nugget there. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. For what purpose? That through death he might destroy him who had the power of death. That is, the devil. So not only was Jesus made manifest in the earth to destroy the works of the devil, but he came to destroy him that had the power of death, the devil himself. It's important for us to remember that the devil is a defeated foe. The devil has been stripped of his power. The devil has been stripped of all authority. In fact, if you go to Isaiah chapter 14, it talks about the devil, and it says that people are going to look upon the devil and say, wait, you're the guy that we were scared of? You're the guy that was causing trouble? You? You know, we, we amplify these things, you know, and I think that, like, we watch movies and uh, the, the, I haven't seen the TV show, but there's a TV show called Lucifer, and, and you know, the devil's in it. And I, I think he's like this handsome British guy. And, and we, you know, like, that's, that's what we think of the devil. Like, the devil's this really suave British guy, or, or he's this giant red monster that's terrifying. And we watch these movies where, where Christians are like, oh, in the name of Jesus, go away. And then the devil eats them because in, in Hollywood, the devil's way more powerful than anything we can think of. That's not true. The devil's defeated. The devil is crushed. The devil can't do anything. Except deceive us. 
or at least try. And when we allow him to deceive us, when we allow him to convince us that he's more than he is, it can cause trouble in our lives. But praise be to God that he is defeated, that Jesus came to destroy him that had the power of death, the devil. And so that's what I want us to talk about tonight. We're not going to be talking about Passover. Pastor, Pastor Mike covered that. So we're going to be talking about victory in Christ Jesus, specifically the victory that we have in the resurrection. So why don't we flip in our Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Today is Easter. Today is the day that Jesus was resurrected. And for him to be resurrected means that he defeated death. He's not just alive. He's alive because death was defeated. Colossians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 11. I assume you're there by now. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. So already we know the context of what he's talking about is he's talking about the resurrection. He's talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And he adds in there that not only has Jesus been raised from the dead, but you and me have been raised to the dead with him, raised from the dead with him. We talked about in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, where it says that spiritual death came upon us, that caused death in every other area. But right here in verse 12, it says, you've been raised back to life. That spiritual death has been removed. Verse 13, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of the flesh, he describes two reasons why you were dead. You were dead because of your own trespasses, but you were also dead because of the uncircumcision of the flesh. That's talking about your spiritually dead nature. So you were dead because you sinned, and you're dead because spiritual death was passed upon you. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him. I'm going to read that again because no one made any noise. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him. There we go. You're together with him. The whole point of all of this, the whole point of being alive, you know, people talk about like, like why does God, why did God create people? Why are we here? You know, well, we're here because God wants us to evangelize. Well, that doesn't make any sense. God made a bunch of people so that we could evangelize each other. Like that, that doesn't track. Oh, God made us because he wants us to worship him. God doesn't need our worship. God doesn't need anything that we can offer. No, the reason God created us is so that we could be together with him, so that we could have a relationship with him. In John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus is praying to the Father in the garden right before his betrayal, and he prays, uh, he's praying to God, and he says, this is eternal life, that you may know the one true God and his son, Jesus Christ. Everything, the reason that you were born the reason that you're alive is so that you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, that was stolen in the Garden of Eden, 
But like we read, God destroyed that work. He destroyed the devil. And he restored that relationship back to us. That's what it says right here in verse 13. You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, but he has made you alive together with him. And then he talks about three byproducts of having been resurrected with him. He is, uh, where are we? He has made you alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses. So your sins have been forgiven having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So the second thing is, is what does he call it? The handwriting of requirements that was against us. The, the language that's being used there uh, is the same language that's used to talk about like when you owe someone a bill or when you owe someone a debt. So he's talking about the debt of sin and the debt of death that we owed. And it says that Jesus took that out of the way. He crucified it. He nailed it to the cross. And verse 15, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. I think the King James says, having spoiled principalities and powers. Uh, Young's literal translation says, having stripped principalities and powers. Uh, The word spoiled, immediately uh, what came to mind was when Pastor Mike talked this morning about the Israelites having spoiled the Egyptians. The Israelites didn't leave Egypt poor and sick and defeated. They left rich and healthy and feared by the enemies of God. He is disarmed, he is spoiled, he has stripped principalities and powers making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Well, what's, what's it? Is it the crucifixion or is it the resurrection? It's both. You know, Romans chapter 4, verse 31, says that Jesus was, uh, he was crucified for our offenses, for our sins, but he was raised up to life for our justification. There's two things going on there. You know, a lot of times people will talk about the crucifixion and and that's all they talk about. Well, if all you have is a crucifixion, then you have a dead God and you're not righteous. It's the crucifixion and the resurrection. Jesus having died for our sins and having been raised back to life in victory over death and sin and the works of the devil. So when Jesus disarmed these principalities and powers, when he made a public spectacle of them, it was because of his resurrection and his crucifixion that joint work together. Now, it's, it's really interesting language here. You know, we, we read principalities and powers here, and those words turn up throughout Paul's letters. You know, principalities and powers and might and dominion and every name that is named. And, and we hear these, these giant words, and we just think that while Paul was writing, he had a thesaurus right next to him. And he's just like, okay, power. What are some other words that mean power? And he just lists all these words. And we read it, and we don't really pay attention to what these words actually mean. But these words had distinct meanings in the original Greek language that that the people reading this would have understood. This word principalities here uh, is the Greek word uh, archi. It's what we use for the words monarchy or oligarchy or, or patriarchy. Uh, it, means, it means like governmental rule of some sort. And so when we read this and it says that he disarmed 
archies, principalities, he's talking about God having disarmed governmental systems that are working against us, both spiritual and physical. I, I thought of Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus is being tempted by the devil, and the devil says, you know, I have authority over all the kingdoms of the earth. Well, guess what? Jesus disarmed all the kingdoms of the earth. The Bible says, uh, I think it's 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, that, that Satan is the god of this world, talking about being the god of the world system that's in place. Well, Jesus disarmed that world system. That doesn't have authority over us anymore because we're on God's side. We walk in his victory, amen? So he disarmed principalities, and he also disarmed powers, Now, Pastor Mike has talked about two different Greek words that are used to mean power. One of them is dunamis, and that means just like power or or strength. The other word that's used is exousia. And exousia is more than just having power. It's the right or the permission to have that power. So dunamis would be like if a man shows up at a bank with a gun. He has power in his hand. He doesn't have the right to use it, but he has the power nonetheless. Exousia would be the cop that shows up with a gun. The cop has the gun. He has the power. But he's also allowed to use it. He has permission. He has uh, the right to have that power. And I think that for us, for people, for Christians, we often think that sometimes there are things that, that we deserve. Right? Like, oh, like I, I, I sinned. I made a mistake. I shouldn't have done that. So the stuff that's coming upon me, I deserve that. And to some degree, maybe you do deserve it. But Jesus said, or, or Paul says here, talking about Jesus, that even things that seemingly have a right to have power over you have been disarmed. Even things that you feel you deserve have been spoiled, have been stripped of all their power. Nothing that comes against you. The devil can tell you all day long that you deserve what's happening to you. You say, well, Jesus disarmed that too. Jesus nailed that to the cross. That's not mine anymore. In fact, we're in Colossians chapter 2. We'll just flip to Colossians chapter 1 real real quick. Pastor Mike read Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 this morning, and I got really nervous because I wanted to bring up verse 12, and he didn't bring up verse 12, so I was like, oh, thank goodness. That's that's still mine. Colossians chapter 1 verse 12 Uh, there's this whole excellent prayer here that, that you should read, but we'll just focus on verse 12. It says, Give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints of the light. Now again, these are a bunch of fancy words that are strung together and we can often overlook what they mean. You know, like, give thanks. He's qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance. That word partakers is the Greek word meris. It's where we get the word merit. It means to deserve, to to have earned. And so right here, when it says that the Father has qualified you to be a partaker of the inheritance, what it's saying is that the Father has qualified you to deserve this inheritance. You know, people will say like, oh, I'm not worthy of what God has done for you or what God has done for me. Yeah, you are. God made you worthy. God transformed your nature. You're not some unworthy sinner that God is just uh, overlooking so that you can get some, some benefits and some blessings. 
You are a transformed child of God that deserves to be a part of his family because of his work, because of his death, and because of his resurrection. So don't ever believe the lie that you don't deserve any of these blessings. God said you deserve it. Years ago, Shania and I were moving, uh, and you know, I don't think there's anything more stressful on a marriage than to have to move. Uh, we, got, we got incredibly stressed out, and we were trying to pack up boxes, and we weren't packing them up fast enough, and the deadline to be out of our place was, was coming up, and, and we just didn't have enough cars and enough vehicles to transfer everything. And we, like, we didn't know what we were going to do to move all this stuff. And then I got a text message from a friend, and, and he said, hey, when do you have to be out of your place? And we said, like, oh, on Saturday. And then five minutes later, he texted me and said, hey, we hired some movers for you. They're coming tomorrow. They're going to take care of everything. And Shania and I were blown away, and we were like, oh, like, no, like, that's so nice, but you don't need to do that. And they're like, it's already done. Can't be undone. It's taken care of. Now, we didn't pay the movers. We didn't hire the movers. How silly would it have been for the movers to show up at our house and say, you don't deserve this. We're not going to move your stuff. It's like, no, no, no. The price has been paid. You have been hired. The money is in your bank account. And now what you're going to do is what you were paid to do. And in the same way, every single one of us, you know, we didn't pay the price for our sins. We didn't live uh, completely righteously. We didn't earn any of these things. But that doesn't change the fact that we're not worthy of them. We have a transformed nature. We're made in the image of God. And we should not believe the lie that other things have power over us because they don't. Having disarmed these principalities, these archies, and these powers, these, these exousias, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it, the crucifixion and the resurrection. Uh, again, we're going to talk about another word in this passage. We're going to talk about that word triumph because, again, it's a word that we use all the time you know, like you're playing, playing video games and like, oh, I triumphed over that guy. Oh, yeah, you know, I made a public spectacle of him. And we don't really understand what that means. But again, this word triumph had a very specific meaning in Roman culture in the first century. It comes from, from two words that were joined together. The first word meant to, to shout really loudly. And the second word, which I think is really funny, the second word, uh, uh, iambus, if I'm saying it right, is... Uh, an insulting poem meant to entertain people. So like if I sang a song that was insulting this guy for all of your, your entertainment, that would be an iambus. And that's where the word triumph comes from. So it's a really loud, shouted, insulting poem that's meant to entertain people. And the way that this was used in Roman culture was a Roman general would go to war, he would win the war, and when he came home, they would have what was called a Roman triumph. And it was basically this, this really decked out parade to celebrate the general and his victory. And so they would come back and they would march through the streets. And the first people to march in the streets would be all the prisoners of war, all the captives who had been caught and defeated. And they were chained up and they were stripped, just like it says in this verse, and they were marched through the streets. And then behind them, you would have all the soldiers that worked with the commander. They would be marching, and they would be carrying all the spoils of war, all the treasure 
and things that they had stolen from these other nations. And then behind them would come the general in a chariot, and he would have this, this purple robe on. He would have a, a laurel crown on his head, and his face would be painted red uh, in honor of the, the Greek and Roman gods. And that was a Roman triumph, coming, coming through town and loudly insulting your enemies while glorying in your victory. And I read that description of the Roman triumph, and, and what immediately came to my mind was Jesus Christ. Not on Resurrection Sunday, but on Friday before. You know, we read that the, the general would be clothed in a purple robe. But the Bible says that, that mockingly the soldiers put a scarlet robe on Jesus when they mocked him. They didn't put a laurel crown on his head. They took a crown of thorns and they twisted it into his scalp. And as a result, his face was painted red, not from paint, but from blood gushing down his face. But that's not the triumph that Paul's talking about in Colossians chapter 2. No, no, no. In, in Paul's triumph, Jesus isn't the captive. Jesus is the victorious general. And who are the spoils of war? Who has been stripped and humiliated? It's principalities and powers. It's everything that the devil thought that he had. The devil himself being stripped and mocked by Christ's soldiers. Who's that? That's you and me. In fact... I was going to bring this up with my Passover part of the service that, that Pastor Mike uh, covered this morning. But in Exodus chapter 14, when God brings the Israelites out of Egypt, he doesn't call them his people. He calls them his armies. God's armies, between two and seven million healthy, prosperous, feared people marching out of the most powerful nation on the planet. That's you and me. We march in this triumph. We get to walk in this victory of Christ Jesus. In fact, the only other place in the New Testament where the word triumph is used is in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, where it says that God leads us in the triumph with Jesus Christ. I'm going to say that again, and you guys can say amen or hallelujah. The Bible says that God leads you and me in this triumphant march with Jesus Christ. We're the ones that have the spoils of war. The things that the devil has stolen from us, the things that God's enemies have taken from you and me, the Bible says that God restores those things. In the Old Testament to Job, who was a man without a covenant, the Bible says that he doubled what had been stolen. The devil has no power over you and me. The devil has no authority. He has no principalities, no, no monarchies or oligarchies or kingdoms of this world. He has nothing that can come against God's chosen people. We can look at one more, one more passage of Scripture. It's probably a really good thing that, that I cut all the Passover stuff because I would have had you here really, really late. We're going to go to Ephesians chapter 1. 
from what I heard, Beth, Beth taught a couple weeks ago, and, and she taught on Ephesians chapter 1. So uh, forgive me if I repeat what she taught on. But then again, Ephesians chapter 1 is maybe the best chapter in the Bible, so you can't hear it too many times, right? Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is praying for Christians that they would have their eyes opened to certain spiritual truths, that they would come to the realization, uh, the plans that God has for their lives, uh, who God has made them to be, and the power that they have. So we're not going to cover the whole prayer. We're just going to start in verse 19. uh, And we're going to notice a lot of similar language to what was used in, in Colossians. Verse 19, what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places? So again, we're talking about the resurrection. We're talking about the fact that God has raised Jesus back to life. I'll point this out because I'm, I'm trying to decide whether I should bring it up or not, and I'll just, I'll just bring it up. When it talks about the, the power that works in you and me, it, it says exceeding greatness. Uh, now, that word exceeding is where we get the word hyperbole, and a hyperbole is when you exaggerate something to prove a point. So, you know, like you see a really tall guy. Oh, that guy was 20 feet tall. Now, he wasn't actually 20 feet tall, but you said 20 feet to just kind of emphasize how big he was. So when the Bible says exceeding here, That's saying the 20 feet tall is true. The example that you can't exaggerate is the kind of power that God has available to you. The exceeding greatness of his power, that power is so great that you could not exaggerate it if you wanted to. And that power is working in you and me. Which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality, and power, and might, and dominion. He doesn't just say that that you're above it. He says you're above all of it. And not only are you above all of it, you're far above all of it. Above the principalities, that's that word archi. Above the powers, that's exousia. Above the might, that's the word dunamis that we talked about. And then above... The principalities, which is, or the, sorry, the dominion, which is where we get the word Lord. When we call Jesus our Lord and Savior, he's the Lord of Lords. That's where this word dominion comes from. And so he's basically covering every kind of power or authority that existed in the Roman world. And it says that Jesus Christ is far above all of it. He is far above all principality and power and might and dominion. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Everything that has a name, Jesus is above. But even if it doesn't have a name, Jesus is above it. If you go to the doctor and the doctor says, oh, you know, you have, you have this disease and gives you the name of the disease, you say, oh, that thing has a name. Jesus is above it. If you go to the doctor and the doctor says, we have never seen this before. You know, we don't even have a name for this. You say, well, praise the Lord. Jesus is also above things that don't have names. It's as if Jesus covers everything. 
It's as if Jesus is victorious over every single thing that could ever come against you. He is far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also that which is to come. And what does he do with that power? Verse 22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, to you and me. Pastor Mike's identified this before, but in that verse, the word things is in italics. That means that it was added by translators. So when it says that he has put all things under our feet, you know, like in in grammar school, you learn about nouns. A noun is a person, place, or thing. So he's put all things under our feet, but he's also put all people in places. He's also put all ideas, and even things that aren't things. All, all is under your feet. All, all has been defeated. All, all is underneath God's church. And not just Foothill Family Church. Underneath the Catholic Church down the street. Underneath the Calvinist Church in the other states. Underneath every single church God has put. Well, I want to rephrase that. Not underneath every single church because all churches are just buildings that are a part of God's one church. So all of us unified with the church, the global, infinite church, God has put everything Satan could ever throw at us underneath our feet. Now you're going to notice tonight is healing school, and I haven't really mentioned healing all that much. We've been talking about victory. We've been talking about about triumphing in the name of Jesus Christ. We've been talking about how the devil has been defeated and has absolutely no authority. But just because we haven't used the word healing doesn't mean that Jesus' victory or Jesus' triumph is any less. Something I think is remarkable is in the Exodus story, Pastor Mike brought up that, that they came out and there was no one feeble, no one sick among them. Between two and seven million people who had been in slavery for 400 years they march out of this, this, this country, and not one person was sick. What I think is so interesting, though, is that Exodus doesn't tell us that none of them were sick. That comes from the book of Psalms. When we're healthy, I think we don't often realize that we're healthy, right? Like, we, we talk about healing when you need healing. And Pastor Mike says, you know, if you're not sick, you should still come to healing school, and it could be health school for you to keep you healthy. But when the Israelites came out of Egypt, they were so healthy that there was no need to even mention it. Because, of course, they were healthy. God had just defeated the strongest nation on the planet. God had just provided all of the needs to his people. God had just caused them to be powerful, them to be feared by the enemies of God. I think it was kind of like one of those, like, well, duh moments. Duh, healing belongs to you. In fact, it's after the Israelites leave Egypt in Exodus chapter 15 that God says, oh, by the way, I'm Jehovah Rapha, the Lord that heals you. If you didn't realize that you're all healthy, that's, that's why. When we come to church, Pastor Mike, when he was teaching on the book of Revelation, 
we should have faith to be healed from his teachings on the book of Revelation. When you see how powerful and strong Jesus Christ is, this book that reveals to all the world, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, that he has all power and all authority and all dominion. Pastor Mike doesn't have to say, oh, and by the way, he also heals. We should be able to hear that sermon and realize, well, of course he heals. When we talk about the victory and the name of Christ Jesus, we should go, well, he gives us a victory. He provides all of our needs. There's nothing that's too big for him. He's given all authority to us, his church. Of course sickness can't come on me. Of course these things can't last. I'm a child of God. When you read the Bible, instead of trying to outsmart God and find loopholes in his word so that you don't get what he says you can have, when you read the Bible realizing that, that he's already rigged the game for you, the words come alive in a different way. God is our victor. God is our Lord. God is our king. God has defeated every enemy that could ever hope to come against us. The enemy's afraid of you. The enemy is deathly afraid of Christians realizing the power that they have. So tonight is healing school, but tonight is also victory school. And no matter what area of your life that you need victory, or even if God's already taken care of every single area, the truths are still the same you still win. God heals those that are sick. God keeps healthy those that are well. God provides for the poor. God provides for the rich. God brings unity and peace to broken families. And God keeps unity and peace in successful, healthy families. No matter what comes against you, In fact, I think it's interesting, the the only two times that the devil really comes against Jesus is at the very, very beginning of his ministry and the very, very end of his ministry. Like the rest of the time, the devil was too afraid to even face off against him. That's you and me. So right now, whatever needs you have, if it's healing that you need, if if you're sick and you need physical healing, then rejoice that God is the God that heals. If you've come across financial hard times and, and you need to figure out a way to make ends meet, realize that God has already figured out the way. God opens up windows of heaven and pours out blessings upon us that there's not room enough to receive. God blesses everything we put our hands to. If there's trouble in your family and you're not sure how to, how to reach out or, or forgive, or reconcile, then sign up for a growth group, because we're talking about it in our growth groups. But also, praise the Lord that God is the God of peace. God is the God of unity. And God can fix those situations. There's some crazy, gnarly family issues when you read the Bible. But God's able to figure those things out. And if you don't need anything, then continue rejoicing. Because the Bible says rejoice always. 
And we should be people who are identified because of our rejoicing. We are a happy people. We are a unified people. We are a joyful people because God is our king. Amen? Amen. Well, I'll say this real quick because a friend of mine asked me to give uh, a call to action when I finished. And so I want to bring this up. Pastor Mike talked about Mark chapter 16 this morning, and it says, uh, go into all the world. It's the Great Commission from Mark chapter 16. Go into all the world and preach the gospel in all creation, and these signs shall follow those that believe in my name. They shall cast out demons. They shall trample upon serpents and scorpions. They shall speak in new tongues. They shall drink deadly things. Uh, They will lay hands on the sick, and the sick will recover. We often read that, and we go, well, I want to do those five things. I want to trample upon serpents and scorpions. I want to heal the sick. I want to, I want to, you know, be victorious in everything that I do. But he doesn't say do those things. He says, preach the gospel and all creation. And when you preach the gospel, when you do that thing, these other five things just sort of happen. So let's be people that preach the gospel to all creation. He doesn't say to all creatures. He says to all creation. We preach the gospel to our neighbors but we also preach the gospel in our schools. We also preach the gospel in our, our places of business. We preach the gospel in our families. We preach the gospel everywhere we go because we're people of the gospel, and that's the language we speak. Yeah. Amen? Amen? Well, why don't we all stand up, and I'll pray. Hallelujah, God. You are so good. <laughs> My goodness, you are so good. You are so mighty. You are so majestic. You are so worthy of all of our praise. You are the God of gods, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And nothing is impossible for you. There's nothing that you can't do. You do all things well. We thank you that you are our provider. That you see our needs and you provide for them according to your riches and glory by Christ Jesus. We thank you that you are the God that heals that you sent your word and healed us of our diseases and delivered us from our destructions. And by the stripes of Jesus, we are healed. We have been healed. We thank you that you are the God of peace, that you guard our hearts and minds with the peace of God that surpasses understanding. We thank you that you are the God of joy and the joy of the Lord is our strength. And everywhere we go, we are a strong people because we are a joyful people. We thank you that you are God. That you're God. We thank you for who you are. That you're everything to us. Everything we could ever need. Everything we could ever hope for. We find it in you. We love you so much. We thank you that you empower us. You give us boldness to preach the gospel this week in all places that we go. In the precious and holy name of Jesus, the people of God said, amen. Well, thank you very much for coming. I hope you guys have a great uh, Easter uh, with your families tonight. And be back on Wednesday for Pastor Mike. You guys are dismissed. Thank you.